Hey, and welcome to Hypnotize Me, the podcast about hypnosis, transformation, and healing. This is Dr. Elizabeth Bonet, and I'm your host. This podcast is not a substitute for mental health treatment, nor should it be. If you need therapy or hypnotherapy, please seek a trained professional. I do hypnosis all over the world, so if you'd like to learn more about me, you can do that at my website, drlizhypnosis.com. That's D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. Now on to our episode. Hypnotize Me listeners, this is Dr. Liz. This is a wonderful day. My daughter woke up and made angel food cake and the whole house smelled wonderful. So that's what's happening while I'm recording this. This week's interview is with Mike Buntrent, who is an NLP master practitioner and trainer. NLP is neuro-linguistic programming. NLP is really a sister to hypnosis. I think the fields contribute to each other, but definitely a lot of the language that I feel gets used in hypnosis came from NLP over the years. Although some people may say the opposite, but this is quite a friendly interview. It's very enjoyable. And I experienced Mike as very grounded He's the father of eight kids, so he does give a parenting tip at the end. And let me give you some of his background here. He has been an NLP master practitioner and trainer since 1993. And he and his wife were the first to launch NLP courses and certification programs online. So their institute is one of the leading online programs Their center offers NLP, hypnosis, and life coach training. And we talk about all the differences of those. And a good portion of the interview talks about self-sabotage, which is one of Mike's specialties. So that's a quite an interesting discussion. Now we do start off talking about artists and processing, but eventually we get to NLP, self-sabotage, and parenting. Before we jump into the interview, I want to remind you that this episode is sponsored by astrologer Rachel Middleton. She's an amazing astrologer. Her prices are really reasonable and she's so friendly and down to earth and so easy to talk to. If you've never had an astrology consult, she would be the one to call. She will put you right at ease as well as probably make you laugh. She's actually one of the funniest people I've ever met. And at one point, All of her friends were trying to encourage her to do stand-up comedy. She is so funny. But astrology can be helpful to help you understand something that happened in the past, something that's going on now, or to plan for the future. You can contact her at firstmagnitude at gmail.com or see more about her on Medium, and that's medium.com slash iheartastrology. I mentioned Dr. Liz or the Hypnotize Me podcast for a 10% discount on an astrology consultation. All right, let's jump into our interview. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Thanks, Elizabeth. Glad to be here. I appreciate you uh, having me on. Yes, I'm so happy you're here. For the listeners, we're here with Mike Bundrant, and he has quite the body of work around hypnosis, NLP, all kinds of various topics, and uh, life coaching as well. And you've run the um, 
is it INLP? The I is for like. Yes, uh, okay. for international. International, I, okay. Yeah, INLP Center. We have uh, we have students in over seventy countries now. So wow, wow, yeah, that's amazing. How long have you had it online, the institute? Uh, the online is since 2011. Um, it, it started, um, I actually took my first NLP training, which stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming, sort of a, a cousin, if you will, of hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started training uh, NLP practitioners in 1995. And it wasn't until 2011 that uh, my wife convinced me to start putting, making, creating some online courses. I was skeptical, uh-huh. uh, uh, but uh, it's just it was best decision we ever made. Really, really uh, wonderful uh, journey since then. Do you find that there's? I mean, obviously, there's differences between in-person training and online training, and. I've actually done quite a few courses online for hypnosis, but mm-hmm. my my basic training was done in person. So mm-hmm. what differences do you see in terms of doing it online versus in person? Uh, there's some pretty, um, pretty significant uh, differences. Um, and uh, as I said, I was skeptical that the, that the material that you're learning could actually be integrated into your day-to-day real life through uh, online learning. I've since proven that wrong and have come to the conclusion that online skill-based learning can actually be much more effective than in person. Um, and so the, the case for that uh, uh, that we've discovered is that, first of all, the learning is on your own time, at your own pace, um, and so on and so forth. It's not like going to a you know a training and then several days in a row or what have you, drinking out of the fire hose and then and then coming home and you're supposed to do something with it, right? True. Mm-hmm. Online, it's like your little ten and fifteen minute segments at a time, small chunks, and you integrate it at at your own pace. And the other thing we found is that with the challenge of, well, how do you get, how do you integrate it into day-to-day life? We designed a, a series of exercises. We call them psyche builders and stealth missions, and we give them cute names. But after each learning module or skill, uh, we have them go and uh, practice in the context of their daily life. And so uh, one of one NLP trainer, that's a colleague of mine, said, hmm, it's like you've taken you, your, your life is the classroom. Right. Mm-hmm. We sort of help them turn their life into a, a learning laboratory. And that is really, really interesting in that when you're practicing the skills and so on and so forth, you're doing it with real people in your real life and not just with other students in a training room. And so uh, it's. Uh, it really works out with that that and with sort of unlimited live online classes and your training actually never has to end. You can continue to uh, take the training, take the classes forever. We have that capacity since it's online. Mm-hmm. 
people actually end up learning it more thoroughly than um, in my experience of just 20 years or so teaching uh, trainings uh, in person, kind of one-shot deals. Yeah, I totally believe that. And that, that's fascinating mm-hmm. because often the experience I hear, I experience this myself, but but then I hear this from other people who have learned uh, hypnosis or NLP. They've gone to some kind of training and they get home and they're like, now what? Like, what do we do now? You know, right. <laughs> they feel sort of right. overwhelmed even. Like, how do I even start? So exactly. you're talking about really chunking the learning and yeah. they get to pace it at their own pace, like the way that they learn best. Exactly. Um, and it is, you know, chunking the learning, pacing at their own pace when they want. So when they're, um, in the mood, in their own space, and so forth. There's none of this, oh, we just had lunch, and it's on day three of the training, and yeah. the afternoon I'm in a lull, but I am sitting here through this class. Um, and there's none <laughs> right. of that stuff, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, just huge advantages. There are people that it doesn't really work for, and I would say um, that is sort of more for people who are technologically challenged, mm-hmm. Um or uh, or they just need in-person contact in order for learning to take place. We all need in-person contact. Mm-hmm. I've come to believe that uh, some people need in-person contact for meaningful learning to take place. And um, you know there there is there are there are people for whom the online learning doesn't work. Um, for that, for that, for those kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess my question is, would that be more of like a kinetic kind of processor? Like someone who really needs to be hands-on? Yeah, that's re- it's, it's really interesting. Um, a hands-on sort of learn by doing, sort of being walked mm-hmm. through the process. And in NLP, we, we would call that a, a kinesthetic feeling oriented uh, processor. I don't learn just by, watching or hearing i learned by by doing and actually um being walked through the process uh in person so it could be that and it could be something that um, it's a really interesting question but there is um something about live versus digital right mm-hmm. yes. um where uh, there's something you know obviously different about that and I I can't put my finger on it, but I think with some people, more meaningful learning kicks in when it's live. And I don't know what percentage of people uh, it is, but it's sort of like some some people get into an online course and it's like I'm staring at my computer screen. It's like they're not seeing through the technology or the gadgetry into – the world of learning possibilities and, and sort of connecting ideas and so forth. Um, they just sort of can't get past that and need to be in a, in a live uh, learning situation. I don't know what you call that. Um, but it, it could be, it could be a kinesthetic learning style. Sure. Um, that, that, that could be it. Exactly. It's really interesting. I have a 17 year old, she's a senior and she really cannot stand the online classes. Mm-hmm. And she also loves paper books, which is quite unusual for her generation, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. 
so so I'm always interested in this, like, you know, why is it that some people really love online learning? I love online learning myself, and then other people just don't take to it. And I imagine it is something going on there that yeah. they need and like the in-person content contact, and that's how they, they really process better. Yeah, in, uh, contact, uh, presence, um, again, these are feeling-oriented words uh, with someone who prefers traditional books. Um, if you think of the heft of the book, uh, the, the tactile sensation, flipping through the pages, yes. it's a different kind of sensory experience than digital stuff. And again, there are people who, um, it's interesting that your daughter as a teenager has that. It, it suggests that, you know, it's not like she was raised in an old school world. No. Right, she's uh, a digital right. native. Yeah. Right, right. So uh, again, it, it would be interesting to you know to learn more about what she experienced. It, actually, there would be a way to to kind of find out, which is to um, you know sit down with her and give her a, a, a Kindle or something and have her flip through it and sort of elicit what is her visual, auditory, and kinesthetic experience, and then give her a real book to flip through and elicit what is her visual auditory and kinesthetic experience and, and compare and contrast and, and, and find out what that is. That would actually be really interesting. It would. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and now that I'm thinking about her, it's like, she's an artist. She loves to create with her hands and that lends itself more right to the in-person mm -hmm. experience. But the one kind of thing she will do online is, is watch uh, artist videos like obsessively, you know, have, they have all these artist videos about how to draw something or how to make something, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a contrast. Uh, artists I find are interesting too, in terms of NLP, because with NLP, one of our models is uh the, called the VAK model, which is, you know, our world is made up of things that we see, hear, and feel, mm -hmm. both on the inside and, and outside. And when you start to deconstruct somebody's inner experience in terms of what they see, hear, and feel on the inside, it's, um, it, it's often very revealing. And the clients who I've had that are artists, um, this isn't uh, a scientific study or mm -hmm. anything, um, it, it may be just a coincidence, but every one uh, was predominantly um, uh, kinesthetic. Uh, so that was their preferred uh, modality. And it was surprising to me by the time I got to like my third client who was an artist who was really a feeling oriented person and there they are painting it's like it's really really interesting i would think well it's it's all visual but i found that um they create from their feelings and yes. in yes. the absence of that there is no creativity right yes absolutely i've had the same experience where originally when artists would come into my office and i would assume that they're visual and it turns out that that most of them are not they absolutely exactly. fell into the, the kinesthetic category. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think uh, creativity is, uh, oh, well, everything is all three. Creativity is visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. Yes. But um, at times of, um, you know, I, I tend to be more creative when I'm in pain emotionally. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's when the poetry comes out. That's when you know the the, the more in depth uh, uh, writing uh, comes out. And I, again, I, I think that's uh, I think that's true in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, can you explain to the listeners? We sort of you know, this interview always takes its own path, right? All of them do. <laughs> sure. But I'm going to change tracks here a little bit. Can uh-huh. you explain to the listeners? the difference between neurolinguistic programming and let's say hypnosis or life coaching, those three, I know you offer all three on your website. Yes. Um, so, uh, as I see it, if we start with, um, maybe the difference between NLP and, uh, hypnosis and then on the hypnosis side of it, I would say you know more about hypnosis than I do. Mm-hmm. So correct me on on. Uh, feel free to correct me if I if I get if I'm off a little bit about uh, the hypnosis part. But um, one of the uh, NLP was was created by going uh, out and finding uh, very talented or gifted healers, uh, psychotherapists and, um, and such that were just doing amazing work of, above and, and, and beyond their, their class. One of those, uh, healers was, uh, Dr. Milton Erickson. He was a, um, mm-hmm. a medical doctor, psychiatrist, and he was one of the pioneers, uh, in hypnotherapy. And he would just get these amazing results with, his patients, things that, you know, people at the time didn't think were possible. And he did it. He had this sort of uncanny, uncanny ability to put people in a trance and just sort of reorganize their thinking and, and so forth. And um, so uh, the NLP developers went and hung out with Milton Erickson and the whole, they were doing what they called modeling, which is let's figure out, what this gifted person does, deconstruct it and break it down and turn it into something that's teachable. Mm. And so a lot of the uh, NLP techniques, so for example, the visual, auditory and kinesthetic model, um, it's, you know, what are, when you think of, let's say, a problem that you have, uh, what image are you aware of on the inside? What sounds or what are you saying to yourself? What feelings that you have are are you having and we we uh those uh, internal images sounds and feelings they have a structure if you have an image it has qualities it's either a large image or a small image or it's close up or it's far away or it's a movie or a still shot there's all these different qualities of uh of experience and so as the as nlp developers modeled uh, psychotherapists and uh, Milton Erickson, uh, Virginia Satir, Fritz Perls, the founder of, uh, of Gestalt Therapy, uh, they were able to come up with uh, uh, these uh, systems or formulas that were extracted from their work. And so um, in hypnosis, for example, you might um, in, uh, intru- uh, induce a, uh, a trance and uh, the person's relaxed and their conscious mind is sort of preoccupied, sent away, and you offer some uh, 
post-hypnotic suggestions uh, some or some sort of internal uh, restructuring of their experience and so forth and provided that they accept that and so on and so forth and, and they go along their way. Well, with NLP, you might do this uh, similar kind of work only without the formal transinduction. So if I'm working with a client and they're sort of describing a, a state, a mindset or what have you in which they're stuck, I might, again, with rapport and so forth, might say, hmm, when you think of that state and you're stuck, what do you see, hear, or feel on the inside? And then we'll just go right to that internal experience and start restructuring it. And it just becoming aware at that level does induce a light trance, but there's no formal trance induction. So Many people think of NLP as hypnosis without the trance induction. It's simplistic. It's not entirely true. Um, but that's one way to think about it. Mm, okay. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful explanation that you gave, by the way, is this, this difference between you know, a formal trance and, let's say, an informal trance, right? Mm -hmm. So the NLP practitioner is mainly just talking to somebody, you're not doing that. Okay, let's go into the relaxed state and, you know, focus on your hands and slow down your breathing and wave of relaxation, all that stuff that a hypnosis practitioner generally does. Often, it depends on how they practice, of course, but often right. they'll do that. So are people seeking out NLP practitioners versus uh, therapists, let's say, because the therapist just sits and talks to you too, right? And we do restructuring <laughs> that way. Right. And some people would call that the therapy trance I do, right? But right. the client's not necessarily put into a trance like you are in hypnosis. Right. So who? what's the difference there between, let's say, someone who says, yeah, I'm going to go see a therapist versus someone who says, I'm going to go see an NLP practitioner? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So... I would say any more, this is um, maybe 10 years ago, certainly 15, 20 years ago, there, there were more people who would go get NLP training and then hang out a shingle as an NLP practitioner, right? And that was before life coaching caught on, right? Yes. Now, um, now the vast majority of people, in fact, as I think through our students, I cannot think of one who is who coming to get NLP training to be an NLP practitioner and hang out a shingle. The people who take our NLP training are already life coaches or therapists or they're working in business, human resources, uh, the medical field, what have you, and they're coming just to add the NLP communication skills to their repertoire and support what they're already doing. Oh, uh, got it. Okay. People are saying, um, I want to be a life coach. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're getting life coach training and based on that life coach training, hanging out their shingle. And a lot of them are doing it as an alternative to becoming a, a therapist, a counselor. Mm -hmm. Um, because, uh, well, for a variety of reasons, I don't want to work in the system. Uh, mm -hmm. It's too, you know, bureaucratic, too much red tape. It takes too long. Yes. It's, I want to do a different kind of work, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really life coaching, which uh, people are wanting to uh, 
establish themselves as. Okay, got it. Yeah, that those were similar questions when I, I left the field for about 10 years and I didn't get licensed after I graduated with my PhD. And when I went back, I spent, um, I would say, many months deciding should I get licensed and be a therapist or right. should I be a life coach? Because it's right. like a shortcut, you know, like a, and a, an effective one. But some of that depends on what kind of clients you want to work with, too. And so ultimately. Exactly. And I really, um, when people say, when people are thinking of it as a shortcut, um, it's a little bit of a concern, right? Because. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want there to be a, 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 a fast track to people suddenly taking on clients that, you know, where they're in over their head, the clients aren't, aren't served that way. And so to address, I think, uh, a part of your question I heard earlier, which is, you know, what, what are the differences? Um, we really emphasize this. Um, life coaching is not therapy. Yes, right. And that there is a a clear legal line in the sand and that legal line has to do with a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, as a life coach, you have no business throwing around diagnostic words like major depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And so you have no right. business yes. talking about those things. And if a client brings those up, you have no business um, directly or indirectly treating that that if a diagnosis comes up as a life coach you must say um i am not a clinician Mm -hmm. i'm not a doctor or mental health counselor and therefore um i don't treat that particular condition however so you'll need to go to a therapist or a psychiatrist somebody qualified to treat that and if you want to see me as well I am happy to be part of that, uh, you know, have your therapist, you know, aware that I'm also working with you and share information and so forth um, with the release of information and that kind of thing. So we really caution people to don't go there, right? Don't, we're not, we're not competing, even though I think a lot of people in the therapy community, um, Therapists don't like life coaches because they're like we're <laughs> we're uh, we're encroaching right um, a little bit on you know clients are opting to see life coaches as opposed to therapists and so forth. But well, we I think it be competing. It really depends on your perspective. Like I don't ultimately I chose ultimately I chose the path of a therapist because I did want to work with deeper issues. And I did want to do more of that depth work. And I think you're right. Some of the field does feel like life coaching is encroaching. But it's, I feel like that's a limited perspective. Like we work often with different populations, different tasks, different feelings, different um, goal states, right, of this versus that. And also it's, I tend to think that's coming from a poverty kind of mindset, you know, like people really right. find what they need along the way. Right. And so there's an abundance there. There's an abundance mindset that someone could have as well of, I truly feel that clients find me for different spiritual reasons. Sometimes they need a life coach. Sometimes they need me. Sometimes um, 
you know, I don't know, they, they need some other kind of practitioner, right? Acupuncture or sure. um, Western medicine. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or a yeah. shaman. Who knows? Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. That's a, that's a brilliant observation, uh, the, the abundance mindset, because um, you know, my background is mental health counseling, and I left the mental health counseling field for uh, you know, training life coaching and practicing life coaching. Um, but I think life, I mean, life coaches and counselors, we're all really on the same team. We're playing different roles, but yes. um, we're, we're, all, we, we're all in this together in order to serve people who, who need our services. So we should be referring back and forth and, and uh, really considering ourselves uh, all part of the uh, – on the same team, right? Absolutely, yes. So when would you recommend that a therapist refer to a life coach? That's an interesting question. Um, I, on principle, I would say that um, if it's in an area, this is a vague answer, but (laughs) if it's in an area the therapist doesn't want to work with and a life coach can, you know, such as goal setting and accountability and motivation um, uh, and those, uh, those kinds of things, by all means, refer out to a life coach. A therapist actually has more flexibility than a life coach in that a therapist certainly can work with clients mm-hmm. on all of the above. It's the life coach that has to draw the line where a therapist doesn't necessarily have to. Um, but uh, referring out to a life coach for you know the, those things that life coaches are you know uh, sort of typically known for about sort of goal setting. Yes. What is per- what is my purpose? Uh, in life, what are my um, life values? What's what's most important to me? Um, how do I create more balance uh, in in my life? And uh, how do I find more fulfillment? And so, uh, as opposed to sort of fixing emotional problems, how do we go from you know uh, uh, neutral into something wonderful, right? And again, therapists can do that too. Um, but, um, they may or may not have the training themselves. If, if, if a client needs, um, say a life values inventory or something along, along those lines. I mean, uh, so many coaches know how to do life values work. Um, yes. yeah, I yeah. think you're right. It depends on the interest level too, because, sure. um, I have quite a bit of interest in like career change and have done that several times myself and started several business businesses, but I was uh-huh. part of this uh, business group and it became very clear to me, like I have no interest in helping walk someone through those early stages of a business anymore. Like at one point I did, right. you know, but it's like, no, right. go hire someone, set up your website and call me back. You know, right. <laughs> like my interest really lies in deeper healing. It's what exactly. I found through being part of that. So in that case, it's like, that's something I'd refer out to. Like if you really can't get that done, then get a life coach, you know, get someone who can really do that, that type of work with you. And if you're getting stuck with a life coach and it's for emotional reasons, let's look at that. So I know you talk quite a bit about self-sabotage. How do you see it or how do you, work with people around self-sabotage? Well, I have a kind of a radical uh, way of working with self-sabotage, which will 
sound a little bit insane out of context. <laughs> okay, uh, great. But, I'm all for it. Right? In context, with a little bit of uh, context provided, it's really intriguing. So um, I, when I hear the word self-sabotage, that to me that is a code word for unconscious goals. Um, it's sort of like um, some part of you, probably an uh, unconscious part of you that you're not aware of or um, not in control of, some part of you has a different goal than you do. And uh, in a real sort of shocking, surprising, twisted sort of way, uh, sometimes or oftentimes that goal is – uh, negative. In other words, some part of you has learned to find some sort of pleasure or satisfaction or self-justification uh, in a negative result. Mm. And this can, this is where we're in a life coaching context, we sort of have to be, it's one of those fuzzy areas because we learn this stuff in childhood. Mm-hmm. Where um, And so say, for example, um, someone is uh, experiencing a lot of rejection and it's like they're um, not shy, but it's sort of like they're predicting that everyone is going to hate their work and essentially people are going to disapprove and reject and so on and so forth. And, and because of anticipating those things – they either do a, a crappy job because it doesn't matter anyways, right? Everyone's going to hate it no matter what, or they uh, they do, or they don't do it. They avoid and procrastinate and so forth. That is self sabotage, mm-hmm. and of course, consciously, they want to succeed, right? And it just right uh, yeah, it baffles them. It so baffles. Like they'll come to me and say, "Why do I self sabotage?" That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that unconsciously some part of them is trained toward rejection. And that that pattern is probably a pattern that started a long time ago with being rejected on a, con, on a consistent basis. And what happens uh, when that happens in childhood and so forth, that um, we have to find a way to tolerate it. We have, right? If, if, yes. if I have a really critical person in my life every single day growing up, for example, I have to find a way to tolerate it. And so by familiarizing it, by emotionally sugarcoating it, by um, oftentimes uh, uh, leaning into it. So you see uh, the a uh, uh, young five-year-old boy with a critical mother, oh, by that age, you can watch him. He's learned just how to push mom's buttons, make her mad at him and giggle about it, right? Yes. So he's turned it into a game. He's turned getting rejected into something that he can giggle about. And that's how he uh, survives it. That's how he tolerates it. That's how he gets through it. The problem is we leave childhood with these kinds of patterns in place where um, clearly consciously I, I don't want to be rejected, but unconsciously I have, uh, I have this pattern where I end up thinking, uh, seeking it out, believing it's inevitable, even 
sort of strangely experiencing it as where I belong or home or what's inevitable or it's the devil that I know kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I will often say, um, we will, uh, we will seek out a familiar misery over a foreign happiness every time. Right. Yes. Uh, what's foreign is scary. So if rejection is what's familiar and you know, you can survive it, you've learned to tolerate, you tolerate it. You've even found some self justification in it. Then you will unconsciously make it happen again and again and again, even though there's no longer a reason to. And so I say to clients, um, let's just imagine once they sort of have this con context, let's just imagine that you have an unconscious goal to experience rejection. And now the challenge is to catch yourself reaching that goal to go through the day and find all the ways in which you're interpreting the world as rejecting you so that you can have your rejection moment and stay in that familiar place. Right. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. People go through and they're like, they go into work and they walk past someone in the hall who doesn't say hi. And they go, geez, they don't like me. They don't even say hi to me and so forth. It's like, well, there it is. I just reached my goal. I walked past someone in the hall. They didn't acknowledge me. And I interpreted that as a major rejection. Yes. Um, or they text someone who doesn't text back right away and they went, oh, geez, you know, there, there it goes again. I'm bugging them. They don't want to hear from me. Well, there it is. I just reached my goal again. Um, they, it's like, okay, I have a, a report or a presentation that I'm working on. They go, oh, my gosh, it's just people are going to think I'm such an idiot. Well, there it is. I reached my goal again. It's like how many times a day are we reaching this strange, twisted, unconscious goal of experiencing rejection? And it's when people realize they're seeking it out that is the empowering moment because now they understand themselves a little bit more. They're able to deal with that part of them a little bit more. And when they become conscious of that goal, um, that's when they can begin to have a choice about it. I mean, we can't have a conscious choice about things that remain unconscious, right? They're just we're not aware of them. But once we become aware of this pattern and we catch ourselves doing it all the time, we then can have a more conscious choice about it and stop doing it. So that's my, in a nutshell, version of, of how self-sabotage can, can work. Fantastic. I love it. <laughs> it takes quite a bit of self-awareness, though. Right? If someone goes through their day, like they have to be really committed to developing that awareness like oh my god there it is again there it is again that's right and you know what's amazing is that sometimes people go oh my gosh it's ridiculous and they stop doing it like it's transformative the moment they notice it other people go oh there it is again and they can't get out of it mm -hmm. um there are other ones other types of uh unconscious goals we talk about such as uh a control, uh, control, and this is we call it an attachment to control. It's an attachment to being controlled by other people, by circumstances in life, mm -hmm. and so forth, and uh, by substances, you know, and so forth. And it, we and we can totally understand it, and yet light up a cigarette or eat food we shouldn't eat, and we sort of know I am totally uh, 
uh, choosing to be controlled by this so that, um, you know, I'm in this familiar place of um, feeling out of control or that my uh, my life is being controlled and so forth. And yet we, we can't stop doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And it can take weeks or months of continuing to be aware of it before we develop the choice. Yes. Yeah. And the other quick thing is um, it's surprising when you get into working with people at that level and myself as well, how often, how conflicted we can be about it, right? How difficult it can be once we have a choice to make a different choice, right? It's Mm -hmm. almost like I've been doing this rejection thing my whole entire life, right? It's, it's what I know. It's who I am. How am I going to live? I can't live without it. Right. I mean, we we start to have thoughts like that and that sort of shows us how ingrained some of these, uh, some of these patterns are. Yes. I, I agree with you. It is really interesting because often from, my side of the office, it looks like uh, just a mind shift, just a choice. Like, do you mm-hmm. really want to feel controlled, let's say, right? Are you mm-hmm. attached to being controlled? Are you attached yeah. to sometimes that turns up as obligation, right? Like, oh, no, no, I can never do that or say that. I have to. The have to start happening, right? I exactly. have to pick up the phone when my mother calls or I have to do this or I have to do that, you know, those types of things. And it's that internal sense of um, attachment to that. And then thinking, okay, they, they often really don't see that there's a choice there. Exactly. Somebody asked me a favor. I have to say yes. In other words, the power is always outside of me mm-hmm. and my fate is is determined uh, elsewhere. And and, you know, some of us learn that it's safer that way. Right. Um, or, or, or what have you. And the idea of taking control and exercising choice and suffering the consequences of those choices and so on and so forth uh, is terrifying, right? Yes, uh, yeah. Being well, it's suffering either way, right? It can be, it can be on this <laughs> side of suffering, right? But, right, exactly. But the unknown is also suffering too. It's like, ah, oh, that's scary, right? Right. Move into something different. Exactly. I always think it's a really important point when somebody says, oh, my gosh, this seeking rejection thing. It's like it's bigger than me. I don't know who I would be without it. I always mm-hmm. think that is just a, such an important moment, right? Because it's mm-hmm. like we're, we're 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 owning it and we're sort of grasping how how immense it is, right? Mm-hmm. And and we're realizing then it's like who will I who will I be without this? And that raises the question. It's like okay, let's talk about that. Yes. Who who will you be without this? And the answer usually is you will be you and all all of your wonderful qualities without this attachment to rejection. That's the only difference, right? Yes. But it's really important to wrap our minds uh, uh, around that because we can define ourselves by these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think often with hypnosis we go into, well, perhaps you would be someone different or something different, or you would feel something different. And what do you want to feel or what do you want to be mm-hmm. And rewriting it that way? 
Mm-hmm. I think that can happen regardless of the um, delivery method, right? Whether that's through NLP or coaching or hypnosis or uh, regular therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, like what kind of delivery method isn't as important as the shifts happening? I agree. Um, these kinds of changes can can happen, um, you know, on the therapist couch or hypnosis, NLP, life coaching, or a mentor relationship, or you know, through a, a deep friendship. I mean, it through so many different um, you know mediums, I suppose. Yes, yes. Yeah. So we are coming to the end of our time. That was fast. Yes, it was fast. And I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know if you get asked this all the time, but I know you have eight children, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Any parenting tips for the parents out there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. I have a couple. Um, one, this too shall pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and. And really, that is that um, is really referencing um, developmental psychology, right? Mm-hmm. That children go through phases, and um, I find looking back because you know my kids are mostly uh, grown and and on with their own lives. We have two at home still, and in the next couple of years they'll be gone. Um, I find that. Most of the things I stressed out about or argued with my kids about or what have you were developmental things, that stuff that they grew out of, right? And that it's not that you can now just ignore everything and say they'll grow out of it. No, but if you, if you realize this is a phase, it's a developmental phase, even study. If you're a parent, you should be studying some version of child development just to lock into your mind that there are different phases and and we do grow out of things and that development actually continues for the rest of our lives right but yes. if you just know that then there will be a faith and a confidence and uh you'll be more grounded as a parent and your corrections to your children if you will won't come out of fear that, oh, my God, they were blowing it here. And this 12-year-old kid is going to end up being a sociopath or what have you, right? <laughs> no, they're not. And so if you uh, are not parenting out of that fear and realize they are going to grow out of it, then um, you'll have – you'll just be a little bit more chilled out and you'll uh, – your your corrections will be uh, – more effective, I think. So that, that's probably the main thing. Fantastic. Um, Thank you. Very good yeah. advice. <laughs> I haven't been asked that on a podcast yet. And I'm glad you did. Oh, yeah. No, great answer. And I'm going to like <laughs> tape it onto my mirror, you know, <laughs> with two teenagers in the house. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. And when it's so many, so many parents enter and I did myself uh, when my uh, my sweet young children started turning into teenagers and suddenly it's like you're rejecting me wait I'm a person too I have feelings you can't talk <laughs> me right it's like I ended up back in therapy uh, but that's just one of the phases they, go, they have to go through it right? is it's funny that you say sociopath too because um I would say like that's 
one of the top things that like psychologists fear is like my kids either going to get a, a head injury or be a sociopath. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and my therapist told me once there's very little um, diagnostic difference between adolescents and a sociopath. <laughs> so she right. said, so don't worry about it. Same don't kind of question. The difference is um, adolescents grow out of it. Yes. Right, a non-sociopathic adolescent uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Grow, grow out of it. So yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. It you bet. Pleasure. It's been great. It's been really great. Thank you, Elizabeth. I really appreciate it. Can you please let people know how to find you? Sure. Uh, you can go to inlpcenter dot uh, org. Uh, that's our uh, that's our website that has all of our personal development stuff on it, as well as all of our uh, trainings. I also wrote a short uh, Kindle book called Your Achilles Eel, not heel, but eel. Mm -hmm. And that book uh, is a, um, a a breakdown of the self sabotage uh, model that we talked about earlier. Oh, fantastic! So yeah. that'll be a really good read for people. Great. Okay, so that will also be in the show notes for everyone. And again, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You bet. Thanks, Elizabeth. truly enjoying today's episode. Remember that you can get free hypnosis downloads over at my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. I work all over the world doing hypnosis. So if you're interested in working with me, please schedule a free consultation over at my website and we'll see what your goals are and if I can be of service to you in helping you reach them. Finally, if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend. That way, more and more people learn about the power of hypnosis. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Peace.